0: Here's something new and exciting. Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World is now on social media with uplifting slash mind bending updates throughout the week. So please follow me on Facebook at David Sacks Spiritual Tools or on Instagram, David Sacks Spiritual Tools. Hi, this is David Sacks, and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Um, We're finishing up the the middle book of the Torah. There are five books in the Torah. um, And if you kind of just think of it uh, just artistically for a moment, um, five means that there's two on one side and two on the other side and one in the middle. So Sefer Vayikra, also known as Leviticus, is the middle book of the Torah and we're we're finishing up that up right now and and there's an amazing sort of like hidden little structure within it um interestingly uh sefer vayikra talks about uh the the mishkan which was the the travel the traveling tabernacle in the desert and that was sort of like the the, the 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 touchstone where the divine presence sort of like anchored itself to this world and and the levium sort of encamped around it and whenever the Jews traveled through the desert it was always the the Mishkan was always in the middle of the Jewish people in the Jewish encampment as we marched through the desert so it's interesting that that the book that describes the Mishkan this tabernacle is also the middle book of the Torah because it's just like the Jewish people surrounded the Mishkan, the other books of the Torah surround Sefer Vayikra. So that's that's just a, a, a very cool visual, if you want to think of it in those terms. But I noticed this, uh, I haven't seen this written, but whatever, I'll just say it in my name then, um, which is a, a, a hidden little kind of like um, theme, if you will, uh, which is weaves itself through Sefer Vayikra which is that every single Parsha of Sefer Vayikra um, begins with the letter Vav. So that's, that's very interesting, except for the very last Parsha, uh of Sefer Vayikra, which begins with the letter Aleph. So let me just weave that into a narrative for you based on what we've been saying. What was the Mishkan? What was this tabernacle in the desert? So, um, it was basically the, the portal between heaven and earth. And and it connected heaven and earth. And and remember, another way to visualize what the Mishkan was, and every time you hear the word Mishkan or tabernacle, please substitute in your mind Migdash or a holy temple in Jerusalem, because they they fulfill the same role in terms of creation. Okay? So, so when Yosef is reunited with his brothers, there's this moment where, you know, he's finally with his, his full brother, uh, Benjamin, remember, because they both share the same father and mother, um, Rachel and, and, and Yaakov. And it says that they cry on each other's necks. And if you look at the Rashi there, it says that, what they were doing was, at that moment, they were mourning the destruction of, of the base of Migdash and, 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 and the Mishkan in Shiloh. Very interesting. So, so the neck then is being compared to the Mishkan or the base of Migdash, the Holy Temple, which is this portal between heaven and earth. So why the neck? Because the neck connects the head and the body. In other words, the body is like earth the head is like heaven and and the mishkan the neck is connecting in between so so when you when you understand the role of the mishkan in this way you understand that the that the mishkan really is the letter vav because the letter vav grammatically speaking in hebrew means the word and right so it's 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 the connector letter and if you think of just um the yud k vav k and i always i always recommend whenever you try to visualize yud k vav k um, which is of course the holiest name of god that you do it above to below so it's yud and k and vav and k and of course the bottom k or He stands for this dimension that we're in right now so so you have the bottom He and then the vav above it which is connecting it to the to the higher dimensions the, the you know you're just traveling holier and holier upward and upward within you know the 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 highest holiest places right so but what you see there is that the vav is connecting this world to the to the upper dimensions just like the mishkan is connecting this world to the next world so therefore doesn't it make sense that Sefer vayikra which is talking about the mishkan the entire book doesn't it make sense that every single Parsha, every single Torah portion within the book would start with the letter Vav? Absolutely, right? It's, it's perfect. It's, it's fantastic. It's another one of these, like, you know, infinite, you know, encoded things within the Torah itself. And then how awesome is it that the very last Parsha of the Torah, of, of, of Sefer Vayikr, rather, doesn't have a Vav, but goes to the letter Aleph. Because we know that Aleph represents Hashem, right? Because Aleph is the number one. God is one. And of course, Aleph is composed of three letters, as we've discussed, which is two Yuds and a Vav, which add up to 26, which is the name Yud Kevav Ke. That's also 26. So in other words, in other words, the Mishkan is leading us all the way up to Hashem, right? Who's simultaneously everywhere and fills all of creation. Right, So so you have, within Sefer Vayikra, the most sort of like beautiful description of what's going on in Sefer Vayikra. But it's sort of like these stitches, like this amazing tapestry, these stitches of these vavs coming at exactly the right moment. And this aleph. And so, anyway, remember, it says, God looked into the Torah and created the world, that the Torah itself is a blueprint of creation. So when you see patterns like this, little stitches in in terms of the tapestry of our world, ideally it should give us more faith and more confidence that even though we don't know all of the answers, that that the the, the, the master craftsman himself is has has forged what's in front of us. And if it's not completely clear to us, we're in good hands. As 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 I wrote in this song Maybe someone can put it to music one of these days. I don't know where I'm going, I don't know where I'm going. I don't know where I'm going, but the driver is good. So so that's that's what it is. It's another reminder. Now, now I wanna talk about um I want to talk about a bunch of things um today, but but Sefer Vaikram. This letter Aleph, which is again beyond, right? Because Aleph represents Hashem, and Hashem is beyond, 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 right? So, with that in mind, the the beyondness of it all, and all the, just how unexplainable so much of of life often is. Um, it, it's appropriate that 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 this last portion. Contains the Klalas. and there are two groupings of Klalas, And I don't like the English translation for it because I just feel like it's it's just too um, it's 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 too too strong. So, so I am going to translate it as negative consequences to our actions. Okay, um, instead of using the the more popular term for it. Um, so, so there are two clusters of Klalas of, of 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 negative consequences, where where God lists what can go wrong if we fall out of sync with the harmony of the universe. Remember that the Torah and the mitzvahs are putting us in harmony with ourselves and with the universe itself. and And when we fall out of sync in terms of being being in harmony with the universe. Then, then, just we we expose ourselves to negativity and to discordance, and 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 that's often experienced as suffering. So, so we don't want to do that. And 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 God isn't sort of threatening us with these negative consequences, but God is informing us. God is saying, "Look, you know, don't stick that fork into that electrical socket because." Otherwise, you'll get electrocuted. So, so God's not saying I'm going to electrocute you unless you listen to me, but He's saying unless you listen to me, you're going to get electrocuted. <laughs> do, do you hear the difference? One is a father pleading with with his child not not to run off the cliff, and 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 the other is just like just someone just threatening and yelling. So, so it, it, it's not that. It's, 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 it's a pleading. It's a pleading. And, um, of course, you have that, the, the classic story, classic, classic story. Um, what, I forgot which one of the Labovitcher Rebbe's it, it, it was, but, but he heard the, the Klalas being read in Torah, in the Torah portion that week, and he fainted in the shul. And they they revived him, and they said, "Listen, you've heard this so many times. Like, what, what is it? Why, why did you faint now?" And he said, "I guess his father had the the previous rebbe had had was just nifter." And he said, "When my father read it, they all sounded like blessings, right?" So, so you, you see the depths of this. Anyway, there's one verse at the at the end of the Klalas, at the end of this grouping of negative consequences, that I want to look into because, and and give you my interpretation, this is my interpretation, but I think it's very special. It's one of these all-star verses in in the Torah. And what I mean by that is, it's been excerpted, and it appears in the davening, like certain passages from the Torah, key verses from the Torah have been excerpted, often by the prophets, because our... Our prayer book was crafted by the Anshe Knesset HaGadola, which is the, translates the the Men of the Great Assembly. And the Men of the Great Assembly had among its members the last prophets of the Jewish people. So when you look at the Siddur, and we're going to be talking more about the Siddur uh, over the next few minutes. When you look at the Siddur, you have to understand that it's um, there's a divinely crafted aspect to the prayers that we say. It, it's not just, um, you know, some people, you know, with great sincerity wrote out some prayers. It's, it's, it's more than that. They were they were counting letters, they were counting words, um, they were arranging the prayers in certain orders. So, so that's all very important to keep in mind. Anyway, so when you see a verse from the Torah that that ends up in the prayer book itself, that's that's very meaningful. And this this verse is often found all throughout the davening of Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. So that gives it even sort of more importance that it's not just that, you know, those days are, you know, there's a lot at stake at those days. So anytime you're going to be excerpting a verse from the Torah and putting them in those Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur prayers, that's that's extra meaningful. So, so here it is. Um, if you want to look it up, it's... Uh, it's chapter 26, verse 42 of of uh, Vayikra, right? B'chukosai, toward, toward the end. And again, very meaningfully, this verse that I'm going to read you in a, in a moment is coming at the end of all the uh, admonitions, right? There's another fancy word, uh, but a- after all the clawless. And here it is. I will remember my covenant with Jacob and also my covenant with Isaac, and also my covenant with Abraham, will I remember, and I will remember the land. Okay. So so that's well one one thing. Just as an aside, we won't really go into it, but it's it's very interesting that the avos, our holy fathers, are being mentioned in reverse chronological order here. You know, you can think about that. We're, we're not going to talk about it too much right now, but it usually we have. Abraham, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. Here, the verse is saying Yaakov, Yitzchak, and Avraham. It's almost as though it's reversing, reversing the clause. In other words, going backwards, right? Like going back to this, back to this great ideal place. Um, just as a first thought on on that, but also it mentions the land. It's also very interesting, right? Because a lot of the problems come. Um a lot of the klalas come and address the land. For instance, you know, the, the 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 crops are not gonna grow. Um the heavens are gonna be like iron, like or copper, right? In other words, you know, you can't you can jam a seed into like a piece of copper, but nothing's gonna grow. And and no rain is gonna come out of an iron sky, right? It just it's just game over, basically. So, so in other words, the fact that God is going to remember the land, and that the land is mentioned alongside Avram, Yitzhak, and Yaakov, is 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 very, very meaningful, right? Um. So, what, one of the things you know, when when I started to to become you know more uh, Torah observant, and and you know, you learn all sorts of things, and. You know if you if you approach it with an open mind and and you you kind of look at the world and you look at what the Torah is saying it it just endlessly blows your mind and one of those things that I experienced in my own life was that it says one of, one of the clauses is basically that the Jews are going to be exiled from the land which we were and then it says we're going to return to the land which we have that's amazing and it says when the Jews are not in the land the land is not going to grow and so for 2,000 years, Israel was one large desert. And then all of a sudden, the Jews return to the land, and the land starts growing. Like, how can you call that a coincidence? It's it's incredible. And those of you who follow sort of like the more um, political events that are going on in the Middle East, and when they're talking about, um, you know, you know, uh, peace treaties and things like that, one of the things that you'll uh, often read about um, is they'll talk about the Green Line. That's something that you'll see. It's, It's a certain part of Israel's border, and they call it the Green Line. And I always thought that, you know, it's like a bunch of generals and statesmen sitting around a map, and they've got different colored pens, and it's sort of like, okay, that's the green line, you know, that it was basically as arbitrary as that, you know, they got to call it something. So we used a green pen, we're going to call it the green line. So that's not what the green line is. The green line is where the border of all the trees that suddenly blossomed in Israel are. Isn't that amazing? And if you look from a helicopter or an airplane, there literally is a green line dividing Israel where the Jewish encampment is. Because the Jews came back and the land started growing. That's amazing. That's amazing. Um, But let's return back to this verse. Because there's one thing in particular that, that, that I want to share with you. And um, for those of you who have heard this idea before, okay, well, you haven't heard the way I'm saying it, but 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 what I'm going to say next, great. But for those of you who haven't heard it, this was one, for me personally, this was one of the, another one of these moments where it's sort of like, the door is so infinite. How could this, how could it be so perfect? So, so here it is. Again, let me read the beginning of the verse. I will remember my covenant with Yaakov. Now, Yaakov there, normally speaking, Yaakov is not spelled with the letter Vav. Okay? But this is one of five instances in the whole Torah where the name Yaakov is spelled with the letter Vav. Okay? Well, that's not the crazy cool part yet. But, listen to this, there are five times that Eliyahu, Eliyahu Hanavi, Eliyahu, who announces the rival of Mashiach, is spelled without a vav. So there are five instances where Yaakov is spelled with a vav, this extra vav, and five instances where Eliyahu, who announces Mashiach, is spelled without a vav. And the rabbis explain that Yaakov is holding on to Eliyahu's five vavs as collateral to make sure that he's going to be announcing the arrival of Mashiach. Isn't that something? So what does that mean? What does that mean? And how does that apply to this verse and the fact that this verse is coming at the end of all the admonitions, right? At the end of all these this cluster of negative consequences, right? Things that we very much want to avoid in our lives. So, so I want to say like this: that it's no that it's no coincidence that one of the instances of Yaakov with an extra vav of Eliahu is coming at the end of all of these hard times. Because the question is. How do we survive all of this trauma that the Jewish people have gone through for all of history? How do we survive these protracted periods of time where where we're literally hunted? And I want to say like this, that it's because Hashem has put this extra love of Eliyahu within us. Remember, Yaakov has another name, which is Israel. That that Hashem has planted this extra vav. Remember, what did we just say that the vav is? That the vav is the connection between heaven and earth, and the vav is also that we see from from this Torah that Yaakov has Eliyahu's vav. That that the vav within us is our connection to a happy ending, to the fact that Mashiach is coming, and it's answering the question: Why is this verse coming? at the end of all these klalas, and how do we survive it? Because Hashem puts this extra vav within us, Hashem has implanted within us this unshakable faith that Mashiach is coming and that this is all temporary. And because we have that vav connecting us to Eliyahu, to the beyond, we've been able to make it through. You know, it's it's a, it's a very long story, and I'm not going to tell it to you. But it's it's just one of the greatest things that I ever heard from Rip Shlomo. And he said that this story is, this story, whenever you tell this story, and I'm just going to cut to the very end of the story, whenever you tell this story, you have to hold the hand of the person you're telling it to. I never heard him say anything like that. And you know who he heard that from? From the person who told him the story. The person who told him the story said, Whenever you tell this story, you have to hold the person's hand who you're telling it to. And the story ends like this it's Rebeli of Lujensk has just saved this saved this family from basically being murdered, right? And then they he gave them this blessing and they took his advice and they, they end up not only surviving this this this, this you know basically this life-threatening experience, but they end up prospering and becoming rich. And one of the greatest students of Rebbe Limelech of Luzhensk, the Choz of Lublin, right? Who they say was a reincarnation of the prophet Yeshaya, right? He could look at your forehead and just tell past lives and everything you've ever done, everything you did wrong. So that was one of the students of Rebbe Limelech of Luzhensk. And Rebelli, the Chos of Lublin had seen like, like right? the Kfitel, right? The, the petition of this person whose life was being threatened. And he, he told him, he said, look, it looks like you're going to die. Let, let me help you. And everything like that. But the person just wanted to go to Rebbe Melech, And then it turned out well for him. And here's the line. Here's the line, Right? This is, this is the vav inside of us that's gotten us through. This is what Rebbe Elimelech t- tells the person at the end of the story. They go to thank Rebbe Melech for becoming rich and surviving this ordeal. And Rebbe Melech turns to the Chozah of Lublin and he says to him, you saw the bad time that was coming, but I saw the good time after the bad time. Again, he said, you saw the bad time that was coming, but I saw the good time after the bad time. And that's, that, is, that is the art of faith. You know, that's the art of faith, which is even amidst challenging times, to be able to see far enough ahead to see the good time after the bad time. And you know, faith doesn't mean that we're supposed to delude ourselves and tell us that we're not in pain, if we are in pain. We have to be real and we have to be honest. But it gives us the ability to know that the story doesn't end there that it continues and that there is a good time after the bad time. And how do we get through that? That's the vav that's been implanted inside of us, that vav of Eliyahu's name, right? Where Yaakov tells Eliyahu, you're not going anywhere. You're not going anywhere until you announce Mashiach. I'm holding on to your vavs. In other words, you're not going to be complete. You haven't finished your mission yet. Okay. So, I want to go further. The Gamoran and Megillah <clears throat> talks about how these two, you know, clusters of Klalas, negative consequences, right? The, these groupings of the bad things that can happen if we're not in sync with the universe, right? Um happen at two very particular times during the year. And the Chachamim, our sages, orchestrated the cycle of the Torah readings so that they'll come um, before two New Years, before Shavuos, which is coming up, which is why we're reading them now. And it's not, it's not the Shabbos right before the New Year and before Rosh Hashanah too. And the Chachamim, they're so sensitive about our, our mental health, really, uh, that's really the the best way to put it, that they don't make it the Shabbos right before the new year. And by the way, what's the idea? The sages explain themselves very clearly. They say that that a new year is coming, which means a new energy is coming, and we want to get all of the bad stuff out of the way before the new year begins. That's the idea of reading these before a new year, right? But they don't put it the Shabbos right before the new year because you might be preoccupied with with these with the, with this negativity. So they say, okay, we'll put it the week before the last week, before the new year. Two weeks before the new year, that, that's where it will go. So we'll come very close enough that we clean the slate before heading into a new year, but not the very last thing that you're thinking about before the new year, because then you might not be in an optimistic state of mind. And we want you to be you know, in a very confident, happy place, which is, again, beautiful. I mean, again, just... The care and the love that comes into every single aspect of 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 just the Torah vision for our lives. So, so the question is: like all the big rabbis want to answer this question. How do the klalas before Shavuos differ from the klalas that we're reading before Rosh Hashanah? And and it's a great question. And I'm going to tell you what the Eretzvi, what Rav Frummer says, is he gives a beautiful, beautiful answer about what's the special nature of reading these Klalas right before shfuas, where we're getting the Torah again. And and he says the following. And uh, I'll just give you a, a visual before we get to his visual. So this is a pre-visual. Okay, you ready? So, have you ever been on an airplane where they say that we're just uh you're you're on the the tarmac and the you, you hear an announcement from the pilot who who says that we have to de-ice the wings? Have you ever heard that? Think I think most people have, right? So, it gets very cold up in the like up in the sky. I don't know. Sometimes you know, they've got all the facts of your flight like how how high up you are and how much longer it is till you land. You know that little screen with all the facts of it? What one, one of the facts that they give you is what the temperature is when you're like tens of thousands of feet up in the sky and it's always like super cold. Anyway, one of the things that they 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 have to do is de- ice the wings of the of the jet so that you can really fly high. Now with that in mind, listen to what Refermer says. He says, you know, we're so used to thinking of our uh that, that that we have to clean the negative stuff that we do. Like you do something wrong and right, you gotta do chuva and kind of fix it up. And you know, for sure, that that's very intuitive. We we understand that. But he says something beautiful and very, very deep here. He says, before we get the Torah at Mount Sinai. He says, you know what we've got to clean up? This is what the Kalalas are coming to do. Do you know what we've got to clean up? All of our mitzvahs. Because you say, well, a a mitzvah, I, I, I did a mitzvah. Like, what do you mean clean it up? Well, you know, some of our mitzvahs are better than others. Let's just face it. Like, when you make a brucha, sometimes you just say it with all of your heart Sometimes you rattle it off, and you don't even know if you said it. Um, this is a real live case uh, from the Shulchan Aruch, from the code of Jewish law, and this always just amazes me—just, just what we're capable of. Okay, so so this is a real live halacha question. You ready for this? They say, what happens if you are you've got your tefillin? In the kind of the, the 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 starting place, right? The tefillin is over your bicep, and you don't remember. Are you just putting it on, or are you just taking it off? <laughs> is that heartbreaking? It's heartbreaking that this is that that we're capable of such. Absences of of I don't even know what I'm doing. I'm sleepwalking. I'm I'm sleepwalking to the point where I don't remember if I'm putting on the tefillin or taking off the tefillin. And 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 the Shulchan Aruch tells you what to do in that instance. Um, so 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 we all know we all know that 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 there are instances where even when we're doing the right thing, the question is, as Reb Shlomo would put it are we doing it with all of our hearts? And so these klalas are coming to, to basically clean up our mitzvahs before we get the Torah at Mount Sinai. Toward what end? And now this is Rob Frumer's. that's Rob, what's what Rob Frumer says, but now listen to his visual. So that we can clean our wings because on shvuas we're going to fly to the highest reaches of heaven to receive the Torah, each and every one of us. And so we want to clean our wings so that we can soar even higher in order to receive, in order to receive Torah from its highest place. Isn't that beautiful? So, So again, you know, if we want to be real with ourselves, you know, we've got to fix the bad stuff, but we also have to make sure that when we're doing the good stuff, that we're doing it with all of our essence, with all of our essence, and that this is a an opportunity for us to sort of like rectify what we're doing right. Um, okay, so now I want to just uh, switch gears and 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 discuss another very big idea uh, from, from what we just read in the Torah. And, and this is talking about the whole idea of Shemitah. And Shemitah is, is an awesome, awesome, awesome construct. Shemitah is um, that every seventh year, we let the land lie fallow. Meaning we don't, we don't plow the land. We don't, we don't sow the land. And, and it's called a Sabbath for the land. And this is like a wild idea if you think about it, because just like in the dimension of time, every seventh day is Shabbos, is a day of rest for us. Every seventh year, is a year of rest a sabbath for the land itself so that's 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 really that's really amazing and every 50th year there's also a rest for the land and sometimes you'll have the 7th year leading into the 50th year which means you'll have two consecutive years of rest for the land. Okay, sometimes that will happen, and that fiftieth year is called the Yovel, and the Yovel is translated into English as the Jubilee. Right. So, by the way, um, it says that if 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 a slave wanted to remain with its master, you know, you would you would sort of like hammer in that little thing under its ear. And and the Torah says the verse in the Torah says that the slave is pledging because he loves his master so much, the the slave is pledging with his ma- uh, to be a slave to his master forever, right? Um, interestingly, even though it says forever, that slave who's made that pledge goes free in the fiftieth year. So that's that. So no one even if you wanted to surrender your agency like this slave does even that person goes free in the 50th year that's that's not that's not widely known because the explanation usually isn't put at that verse okay so so the saphiyatsira says that there really, you can boil down reality to three different categories. To time, space, and soul. All of reality can be boiled down to those three things. And, you know, scientists talk about the time-space continuum. And I think that it's such an interesting little kind of like reference point to kind of contrast the Torah point of view to the... um scientific point of view, by, by showing that we incorporate what science says, we also have time and space as the initial sort of like foundational touchstones of reality. But we add this third dimension, which is soul. And I think that that's, I think that that's great, because our vision is 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 so much more comprehensive because of that. Now, now, I want to zero in on something, which is, there are certain things now that you can track across these different dimensions of time, space, and soul, okay? So, it says that, in, so in time, the seventh day is Shabbos. So, here's the question, what is Shabbos in the dimension of space, Right? In in time we know it's the seventh day. But where do you see Shabbos in space? What is Shabbos in the physical realm? And the answer is the land of Israel. So Shabbos is the land of Israel in the dimension of space. Now With that in mind, you know, I'm always very careful about this. When someone comes back to the United States after visiting Israel, I always like to say welcome back as opposed to welcome home. Because home is Israel. Home for all of us is Israel. And, you know, if we can't live in Israel for whatever reason, we have to want to live in Israel. And if we don't want to live in Israel, then we have to at least want to want to live in Israel. (laughs) In other words, in other words, we have to be attached to living in Israel either through actually living in Israel or wanting to live in Israel. And if we can't even want to live in Israel, to at least want to want to live in Israel. It's very important that we stay attached to the land when we're not there. Um, you have to understand in terms of your own personal um, anatomical composition, you've got a head, you've got hands, right? You've got a torso. So, so you can describe the different parts of your body, but you have not fully described who you are yet unless you also include the land of Israel. In other words, the land of Israel isn't just a place in the world. It's part of the composition of every Jew. And that's why this verse that I read you earlier says, I'll remember Yaakov, I'll remember Yitzhak, I'll remember Abraham, and I'll also remember the land. Because the land itself is part of you. And one of the most amazing things one of the most amazing, amazing things is that you see, how do we get out of our place of entitlement? See, most people feel like this is my world and I'm gonna make a little space in, in, in my world for God, right? I wanna be a good I wanna be a good person and uh, it's nice to be a little bit religious. So I'm gonna it's my world you know, let's be honest, but, you know, also I want to be a good guy, so I'm going to make a space for God. And consciously or not consciously, right, because it doesn't sound so good what I just said, consciously or unconsciously, I think that this describes how most people think. So, so obviously, it's God's world. But where, if you want to get down and just drill down, where does our sense of entitlement that this world belongs to us, where does it come from? So you can probably give a lot of answers. But one of the bedrock answers is that we think that the land is ours. <laughs> Just think about it. Like, like, like there's, a, there's a, a phrase, I think it's Latin, terra firma. Terra firmer means firm ground. Like when someone says to you, um, you know, agrees with your logic, right? They say, you're on terra firmer. You're on firm ground, which means you are right and correct. In other words, I know that this ground under my feet, that's mine. That belongs to me. So, and, and once you think that the ground belongs to you, then the world belongs to you. Do you know, I would hazard to say, and I know that this is a massive generalization that I'm about to tell you, that that most wars over the course of human history have been fought over land. Either this is my land and you're not going to take it and I'll kill you if you think you're going to take my land, or that's your land and I'm going to take it and I'm going to kill you in order to take your land. I think that's most wars, right? In other words all coming from this central premise that the land belongs to me. The land is mine. So what does God say? God says, the land belongs to me. (laughs) Now, have you ever heard that expression? I had the, you had the rug pulled out from under your feet? Like people, people don't use it so much anymore that, 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 I guess, maybe rugs have gone out of style or, or pulling out rugs from under people's feet. Maybe, maybe people used to do that, you know, just as a practical joke for people. Who knows? But you don't really hear that phrase much anymore. But it's a great phrase, actually. And just think about it. Just visualize it for a moment. You're standing on a rug. Someone takes the rug and gives it a powerful yank and you fall backwards on your head. Like it was very unexpected and the fall that you experienced was very traumatic. Well, that's what God is doing in a a great way. He's saying the land that you're standing on, guess what? (laughs) It belongs to me. Now once I realize that the land doesn't even belong to me, you know what my next thought is? The whole world belongs to God. And in fact... God says it over and over in different ways in this Parsha, and it's, it's glorious, really. It's, it's really fantastic. God says, when you sell the land to another person, you're not selling the land. You are renting the crops that grow on the land. In other words, even when you're like in, engaging in real estate deals, don't think that you're selling the land, because the land is mine. That doesn't change. You're just making a deal about what you're going to do on the land. You know, you have different economic systems. You have got capitalism, let's say, on one end, where it's like every person for themselves, right? Then you've got communism, say, on the other side, which is that... uh, you know, the means of production is going to belong to the workers. You know, the, the factory will be owned by the factory workers and will evenly divide the proceeds, right? And, you know, I was kind of reflecting on, you know, communism, of course, in theory, it sounds like, you know, perfect justice realized in this world. But we know that it was one of the great horror shows of human history. And it's because communism, well, for many reasons, but but one of the reasons is because communism went too far. And let let me tell you what I mean by that. Because, you see, communism didn't want just everyone to have the same salary, right? Communism wanted everyone to be equal. And you can't make everybody equal. And if you think about it, and this was, I was kind of excited about this thought. I was thinking about it over Shabbos. If you think about it in the deepest way, everyone really is equal. And let me explain what I mean by that. And I'm talking about everybody in the world really is equal. Um, let me explain. Because everyone has. Two common denominators. One, a mission, with what, what their soul needs to accomplish in this world. And two, the obstacles that stand in their way from accomplishing what they need to. Does everyone hear that? Everyone is equal in the deepest way. Because everyone has a mission that they need to accomplish in this world. And everyone has obstacles that stand in their way toward accomplishing that goal. And so when, when I say that I'm talking about the person who lives in, you know, a giant house in Bel Air, which is, you know, one of the richest neighborhoods in the world, to someone who's like, you know, living in Bangladesh. Every single person in the world has what they need to accomplish an obstacle standing in their way. The difference is, and this is a big difference, but the difference is, is that everyone's circumstances surrounding those things are going to be different. And you can't equalize the circumstances of a person's life. And so part of the great horror of the, you know, communist tyranny was trying to equalize people's circumstances, in addition to their income. So anyway, economically speaking, on the one side you have capitalism, on the other side you have communism, and God comes up with this system, which is this amazing in-between, right? Long before capitalism and long before communism, by the way, God came up with this Amazing economic model, this utopian economic model. You ready? Everyone has a piece of the land of Israel, right? And every 50 years, you get your land back. Because over the course of those 50 years, fortunes rise and fortunes fall. And it could be, as was often the case, people needed to sell their family land in order to generate cash. But every 50 years during the yovel year, during the Jubilee year, right, where all the slaves go free, everyone gets their piece of land back and it's like God hits this divine reset button and everyone gets a chance to start again. And it's the most practical reminder because if i were to say to you as i did moments before the land doesn't belong to us right you'd say well yeah that's yeah okay i, I kind of get it it's kind of inspiring it's it's a bit abstract for me but i kind of get it but what if you lived in an economic system where the land really didn't belong to you and every 50 years you returned it back to the original owner can you imagine how much more spiritual people would be? Because they'd they'd say, you know, what am I doing amass- spending all of my days in this world amassing greater and greater and greater real estate holdings and wealth when it's all just going to go back to the original owners anyway? Can you imagine how it would change your time in this world? And you'd say, well, you know, if all of my material possessions are basically just going to return back to the original owner anyway, let me think beyond the material. Let me have a wider perspective about the the journey of the soul through this universe. And then people start to think about the more important things and and, and being nicer to each other and things like that. It's an amazing model, an amazing, amazing model. So so I just want to tie it all together and we'll, we'll start to finish up here. What did I tell you? I told you that every seventh day of the week is Shabbos. And every seventh year is Shabbos for the land. And that in time... You have Shabbos, and in space, Shabbos exists as the land of Israel. And I told you that all of our homes is Israel. Do you know what that means if you continue along this logical sequence? That means that every Shabbos is a little bit of Israel also, right? Right? That means every Shabbos, even if you're outside the land of Israel, every Shabbos you're going home. Shabbos is not just a day of rest. Shabbos is the land of Israel in time. <laughs> and Israel is home. That means every Shabbos, wherever you are in the world, you're going home. Now, I want to tell you I told you that the prophets were instrumental in designing the prayer book. And I want to tell you something that that hit me on Shabbos. It blew my mind, okay? And I'll tell you the more established thought, and then I'll tell you the new thought, okay? Every davening that we say and this includes even all the holidays in Rosh and Yom Kippur, the first three blessings of the Shemona Esrei, the Amida, that's the centerpiece of our prayers, is always the same. Maybe a slight variation here and there, but the first three blessings is always the same. Now, have you ever noticed, because this was by design, have you ever noticed what the first word is after the first three blessings? In other words, the first three blessings are always going to be the same, What's the first word after the first three blessings? And the answer is "ata," you, right? As in "atachonen," right? And many other examples in mincha of Shabbos "atachad." You're always going to get this word "ata," you. Now, there's a very big exception to this. Shabbos morning. Shabbos morning, the first word after the first three blessings is Yismach, right? Which means to be happy, to rejoice. And it's Yismach Moshe, right? That's actually a famous Hasidic Sefer, it's named after these words. It's called the Yismach Moshe. Um, So Yismach means to rejoice. Now, why does it break the pattern here? In other words, there's a very deliberate pattern that's been that's been designed in the prayers, but all of a sudden Shabbos morning and and Shabbos Musaf as well, which are kind of linked together, so both of them deviate from this uh, from this pattern, and all of a sudden you're going into brand new territory, boundless territory, unbounded by this word Atta. So, so the the morning. The, the 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 morning of Shabbos correlates with Yitzchak Avinu, right? Nighttime of Shabbos is Avraham, Shabbos day is Yitzchak, and Shaloshudis, the end of Shabbos, is Yaakov. So I heard Reb Shlomo give this explanation, and I've never stopped thinking about it because I love it so much. So so why does Shabbos day correlate with Yitzchak? Because Yitzchak never left the land of Israel. He was born in Israel, and he was told by divine decree, never to leave the land of Israel. So, so, so Rabbi Shlomo says, when you wake up on, when you wake up Shabbos day, it's Shabbos. That's like Yitzchak. He's born into Shabbos. You wake up at Shabbos. And then he says, you take a nap on Shabbos and you wake up from your nap and it's still Shabbos. (laughs) So, so all there is is Shabbos. Um, And Shabbos represents the infinite. Because the Messianic period has another name from the sages. It's called Yom Shakulo Shabbos. The Messianic era is called the day that will be all Shabbos. So I was thinking about it, like here, Shabbos morning, all of a sudden we finish the first three blessings, and we don't say Ata, We say Yismach. And I thought to myself, "What if I take the gematria of the word yismach? I wonder what it would be." And then I thought, "Nah, why bother? I'm just standing here in shul. I, I how am I going to know what number? Like, I don't have like a, a book of like gematrias in front of me." And then I said, "Ah, just add it up anyway." Anyway, it it I almost fell over. You know what? Yismach is gematria? Mashiach. That one I know. I didn't have to consult a book for that. 358. (laughs) I added it up. Can you imagine? By design. By design. And you know, even more than it being the gematria of Mashiach, if you rearrange the letters of Yismach itself, it spells the word Mashiach. That doesn't always happen. Why? Because you're in this boundless, limited space where you wake up at Shabbos, you take a nap, you wake up, it's still Shabbos. And that's home. That's the point. Every Shabbos we go home. Every Shabbos, wherever we are, we go home. And that home, that home is going to be the time where all the good is revealed. And we get to taste it a little bit every Shabbos. You know, it says very famously, I'm sure you've all heard it, but it's so true. More than the Jews have kept Shabbos, Shabbos has kept the Jews. And you know another way of saying Shabbos has kept the Jews? God has put that Vav, the Vav of Eliyahu, within Yaakov Avina to keep us attached to knowing that even after the bad times, there are good times. And um, I came up with a title for something. Maybe we'll end on this point. Here's the title. Optimism equals truth, because there really is a happy ending. Okay. So, in terms of this this idea of of the vav that 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 we've got this connection to to the happy ending inside of us, let me just give a, a practical way of, of 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 living with this idea. Um, you know because cuz it's important and and it's 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 a theme that I I talk about over and over again but that's because I really think that it's absolutely essential you know for us to get through life with which is the the notion that God is good and 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 the practical aspect of that is that if that that God wants the best thing for us And, you know, if if I were to ask you a question, what would you rather have, What, what you want with your limited understanding, or what God who's good wants for you with his infinite understanding? I think that most people would say, well, look, I mean, if I don't know anything, and he knows everything, and he's good, and he loves me, and this is what he wants for me, then, yeah, I want to go with that. Um. So so if we can live with that perspective, that means that no matter what's happening, even if we're experiencing it as a downturn, we know that we just won because the one who knows more than we do, and who wants the best for us, and who loves us the most, that's what he selected for us, which means that you can go through life, and you can choose to go through life this way, and it's actually the deepest and the highest way to go through life is that you're constantly winning you're you're literally constantly winning because god is always making that best decision for you now now there's another side to it and we have to be realistic about this as well which is that sometimes I'll just sort of like it super selfish and and kind of like you know like my desires you know will just sort of like overtake me and I'll make what is perhaps not the best decision. So now I just kind of you know now basically through through my decisions I just walked by the the edge of the sidewalk next to the next to the the muddy puddle that the car just zoomed through and now my shirt got mud on it. Okay so I don't want to go through life with mud on my shirt so now I have to get cleaned. So so, so now God is now lifting me up and he's cleaning my shirt. He's taking me out of the thorn bush. But when you get pulled out of a thorn bush, you're also going through thorns. So it's not great, but you don't want to be in a thorn bush either. You want to get out of the thorn bush. Well, I got myself into the thorn bush, getting out of the thorn bush. Sometimes I'm going to experience discomfort. And so, but that, but the point is, is that that's also God being good. That's God saying, I want to clean you up. I want to clean you up. You know, sometimes we you know, you, you want to clean a baby and the baby it's like uncomfortable. Ah, the baby's crying, but what are you doing? You're cleaning the baby. So so we're off in the baby and we, we don't know why are you taking that scratchy thing against my face? I'm cleaning you. I'm cleaning because I love you. So so the things that are mystifying to us That's the best, because God loves us and God knows more for us, so we win. And even the things that can be painful are the best, because, yeah, look, I'm not perfect. Anyone who says they're perfect is just lying to themselves, basically. So I do need cleaning. And so now this is God cleaning me from a place of love, so that's also the best. So again, The key to absolutely everything, the the secret key to living a Torah life of closeness and holiness and happiness and everything like that, it all boils down again and again to the same thing, which is understanding that God is good. That is the great secret. That is the great secret. And if you can do that, if you can do that, then you're able to access the good time after the bad time, in the realest way, on a daily basis, on a moment-to-moment basis. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for our new podcast, where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions. I'd love to hear them.